You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 1st of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up, South Korea says it was forced to respond after Russian and Chinese jets entered its airspace. We'll have the very latest. Also ahead on today's programme, Monocle's Chris Jermak previews Joe Biden's first state dinner as US President. It's worth noting that France has now beaten the UK to the punch for two White House administrations running. President Emmanuel Macron will tonight become the first invited state dinner guest of both Donald Trump and now Joe Biden. Much more on that later. We'll also have the headlines from Latin America and then Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be here with his World Cup countdown. Fernando, what do we get today? Hello, Marcos. We are approaching the later stages of the Global Countdown World Cup. Today, plenty of heartbreaking songs. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. South Korea's military has said it was forced to scramble fighter jets after two Chinese and six Russian warplanes entered its air defense zone. John Nielsen Wright is Korea Foundation Fellow at Chatham House and an Associate Professor at the University of Cambridge. John, welcome to the program. How much do we know at this stage? What exactly happened? Uh, we don't know a great deal. Um, we, don't, we do know that both Chinese and Russian jets appear to have... Uh, entered into South Korea's air defense identification zone. They do not appear to have um, entered into South Korea's airspace, and that's a really important distinction. Um, So they haven't violated, if you like, the territorial sovereignty of South Korea. But um, no doubt the Koreans are legitimately concerned about the proximity of a combined Chinese-Russian air intrusion. And it raises interesting questions, I suppose, why might they be minded to do this at this stage? Um, is this a warning shot across the bows, if you like? We've seen closer coordination recently between Washington and Seoul. Um, earlier this, uh, well, last month in November, we saw um, joint air exercises, some 240 aircraft, combined aircraft of South Korea and the United States working together to enhance their security in the face of the threat from the DPRK. And of course, we've seen wider trilateral coordination between Seoul, Washington and Tokyo, uh, particularly in anti-submarine warfare exercises. It may be the case that what the Chinese and Russians are trying to do is to send a signal to South Korea and the United States to to, uh, moderate their own military cooperation. And it's something that the Chinese have been um, highlighting in trying to I think unconvincingly legitimize the the military more, militarily more provocative actions from North Korea, claiming that it's the joint U.S. South Korean exercise exercise that explain why Pyongyang has been more assertive with its missile tests, um, an argument which, of course, Seoul and Washington both reject. Now, there's also a question of that air defense zone. Beijing and Moscow don't recognize it. Why is that? Um, because they themselves um, want to extend their security reach. Um, air defense information zones have long been a source of controversy. Um, this isn't the first time that 
China and Russia have um, sought to challenge this. Um, and of course, it's in a part of the world, in Northeast Asia, where there are real security um, disagreements over territory, um, less about airspace, more about um, um, actual territory on the ground. In the case of um, this part of the world, China, of course, has claims over the so-called Senkaku or Dayutai Islands that um, are contested between Japan and uh, the PRC. Uh, and Russia, of course, occupies um, some critical territories to the north of J Japan, the so-called Northern Territories that are have been held by uh, Russia since the end of World War II, in which the Japanese um, are seeking to to, re to regain those territories. So there are a lot of areas where there are territorial and um, strategic differences. And this is a way, if you like, on the part of both Moscow and Beijing of asserting their uh, their own willingness to intrude into space that they feel is strategically important to them. Does this incident reveal anything new to us about the relationship between China and Russia? Um, it obviously highlights, I think, increased coordination. Um, even though Beijing and Moscow, of course, uh, have their real differences, particularly over the war in Ukraine, um, uh, there are, I, I think, common interests on the part of the Chinese and Russians to demonstrate their military coordination and cooperation. Um, uh, and particularly in this part of the world, um, Russia, in a way, by aligning more closely with China, can demonstrate that it's not isolated globally. Um, and there is, I think, legitimate, from the point of view of Beijing and Moscow, strategic concern that the closer coordination between the US and its Northeast Asian allies threatens their strategic interests. Um, it was only recently that Jake Sullivan, um, President Biden's national security advisor, in a conference in Seoul um, through a video link, made the point that extended deterrence is increasingly important um, for the United States and its regional allies in dealing with the threat from the DPRK. But much more importantly, I think, from Beijing's point of view, more of that cooperation limits China's own strategic flexibility. We saw that a number of years ago with the deployment of so-called THAAD missile batteries, um, missile defense mechanisms in South Korea to deal with the approximate cause of security, insecurity, namely North Korea. But China sees this as compromising its own strategic interests. And therefore, we see these periodic efforts to push the envelope um, and this coordination between Moscow and, and Beijing, I think, is just a further iteration of that. Having said that, um, you know, there have been important signs of progress between China and South Korea. It's only recently that um, the two countries established a joint Navy and Air Force hotline, um, specifically to prevent miscommunication and uh, confusion. So um, there is, if you like, um, a slightly contradictory message going on here. Um, and that element of contradiction is partly, I suppose, deliberate by Beijing to keep South Korea um, at least guessing, if not on the back foot, but I'm not sure it's going to work. Um, the UN administration is pretty clear about its desire to strengthen its coordination with Washington and also with Japan, let it not be uh, underestimated. That's a very important development. Uh, and I think if you're sitting in, in either China or in Russia, this seems um, uh, something that you would want to sort of try and push back against. And therefore, we've seen these sorts of exercises. Thank you very much for your insights, John. That was John Nielsen Wright from Chatham House. It's 12.08 here in London. Here is Monica Stomedwoods with the day's other news headlines.
Thank you very much, Marcus. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa is facing the threat of impeachment over a financial scandal that's engulfed his administration. Ramaphosa is accused of covering up a theft from his farm. The allegations include kidnapping and bribery. China is set to announce that it's easing COVID-19 restrictions and reducing mass testing following widespread protests in the country. China's COVID caseload has risen dramatically in recent weeks, but officials are eager to bring an end to the demonstrations. And French referee Stephanie Frappard will make history today when she becomes the first woman to referee a match at the men's FIFA World Cup finals. Frappard will take charge of Germany's group game against Costa Rica at the tournament in Qatar. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Tom. The US President Joe Biden will host his first state dinner at the White House later today. The guest is familiar... Francis Emmanuel Macron, who was last welcomed just three years ago by Donald Trump. Monaco's Washington correspondent Chris Jermak reports on the preparations and the significance of Macron's trip. It's really hard to overstate the pageantry and symbolism that goes into organizing a state dinner at the White House. Jill Biden, the First Lady, offered a preview of the dinner which will take place in a candlelit pavilion on the south lawn of the White House today and will be the first since the pandemic. The First Lady described how everything is meticulously planned for months, with the country being celebrated in mind, of course, down even to the flowers. The design of this dinner was inspired by the shared colors of our flags, red, white and blue. On the tables are vivid red roses and blue delphiniums alongside white irises, which are the symbols of our nation's capital and of France. They're intricate petals reflecting the interwoven history of our nations. The flowers are just one example of the carefully chosen symbolism, though there will also be a bit of friendly competition. The First Lady said she was particularly proud that three American cheeses are being featured for the cheese course, including Rogue River Blue, the 2019 winner of the Global Cheese Awards. Take that, French farmers. But fun aside, the choice of France for the Biden's first state dinner really does mean something. For all the stature that the UK attaches to its so-called special relationship with the United States, It's worth noting that France has now beaten the UK to the punch for two White House administrations running. President Emmanuel Macron will tonight become the first invited state dinner guest of both Donald Trump and now Joe Biden. And it's not just the UK that Macron has taken precedence over. In fact, there's only one other leader, former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who has been feasted at the White House between Macron's last visit in 2019 and his visit tonight. Having a state visit with uh, Emmanuel Macron is actually a really big symbol that we cannot really just pass through. This is Marie Jourdain, a former French defense official who dealt with North American affairs and is now with the Atlantic Council. Jourdain says the gesture from Biden is especially significant because it comes after a period of discord and disagreement between the US and France. On Afghanistan, on trade and China, on Ukraine and the path towards peace, and of course on a submarine contract that saw Australia, the US and UK 
publicly snub France and sign the AUKUS security agreement. Given those divides, Joe Biden's invitation to Macron suggests that there is a recognition here in Washington. Not just that the relationship with Paris needs to be mended, but also, according to Jourdain, that the United States, for all its power, really needs France. It's really something about we really need to have on board the French to advance our U.S. interests. And so in that regard, I think it's not just, you know, about language or all the stalai or we love France. France hasn't always been the traditional choice for this. Different American presidents have celebrated different European allies, while also using the pomp and ceremony of a state dinner to court rivals. Barack Obama was famous for his friendship with Germany's Angela Merkel, for example, who got her own state dinner in 2011. And when it comes to rivals, Obama twice invited China's leader, first Hu Jintao in 2011, and then Xi Jinping in 2015. President Reagan hosted his good friend and political ally, Margaret Thatcher, twice in his eight years, as well as the last Soviet leader and recently passed, Mikhail Gorbachev. So Joe Biden's invitation to Macron at such a delicate time isn't really just about France. It's also a sign of how Washington views France's role in the European Union. The center of European power may be shifting in the aftermath of the war in Ukraine, with Eastern European nations and the Baltics making themselves heard now more than ever. But the Atlantic Council's Jourdain says France and Macron are still seen as most capable of uniting the European continent. I think from the American perspective, when you want to talk about future of Europe, future of the European continent stability, France is a really key partner still, very much so. And so I think the acknowledgement of having a state visit and state dinner with Emmanuel Macron is not just about the bilateral relationship, but also how France remains a key partner to impact European policy. Expect Joe Biden to use his meeting with Macron to convince Europe to keep up military support for Ukraine, and even help bear more of the burden. You can also expect Biden to push a tougher approach to China, a country with which France, to at least some extent, still prefers greater diplomatic engagement. For France's part, expect Macron to push for greater American support for European manufacturing on energy and even the military. If the US wants Europe to shoulder more of the burden, it should be more supportive of efforts to build up Europe's own military-industrial complex. But enough about the hard conversations. If you are one of the high-profile guests at the White House tonight, you can expect a serenading by John Baptiste and warm words in celebration of America's oldest ally in the American Revolutionary War. Sure, it's all something of a show, and there are tensions under... But Emmanuel Macron's second state dinner in four years? That's still a pretty big deal. For Monocle, in Washington, I'm Chris Chermak. Chris, thank you very much. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. We're going to get a roundup of stories making news in Latin America now, and in particular how some nations view their relationship with China. Monaco's Latin America affairs correspondent Lucinda Elliott joins me from Montevideo. Good morning, Lucinda. 
Good morning, Marcus. Shall we start by looking at some of these deals? So China has indeed made a number of new deals with nations in Latin America in recent weeks, pledging its financial support most recently to Cuba. What is behind this move by Beijing? So China is putting on the charm again, particularly among LATAM nations that are struggling to finance themselves, namely Cuba, as you mentioned, and Argentina. Um, earlier this week, Beijing agreed to restructure Cuban debt and provide the island with more trade and investment. Um, it's not actually clear how much Cuba owes China, but this is part of Xi's kind of long-term strategy to secure allies in the region, particularly in the context of Taiwan but also after the pandemic, where he hasn't been able to meet delegations in person. Um, China is is Cuba's second largest trading partner, um, and it's most of the region's number one or two. And so Cuban President Diaz-Canel's sort of in-person sit-down is really a sign of how China is trying to jumpstart its diplomacy in Latin America after a total shutdown of such exchanges during the pandemic and also when delegations from the US have been visiting throughout most of 2022. Now this Havana arrangement follows on from a currency swap deal made with Argentina just last month, some week ago in November. But let's let's look at the situation where you are now. Is Uruguay on its way to securing the long-awaited free trade deal with China? Yeah, so Uruguay has been has been eyeing up this free trade deal with Beijing for, for a while now, since its pro-business conservative government was appointed in 2020. The problem is, is that Uruguay is part of Mercosur, which is uh, one of the world's actually most inefficient trade blocs that dates back to about 1990. Um, and as a member, Uruguay can't make these sorts of exclusive deals without the group's approval or without leaving. Um, So for a year now, we've had this sort of idea of an Uru exit, a bit like a Brexit. Um, And the country is also looking to sign up to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So it's really on a roll. But the others, a a bit like Europe, are not keen. Uh, Brazil had been relatively supportive of Uruguay's bid to sign this FTA with Beijing, in part because Bolsonaro, the president, um, is not really keen on promoting regional alliances, and he agreed with Uruguay's Lacaypo that Mercosur isn't particularly beneficial to Brazilian industry, possibly eyeing a, a similar sort of setup with Beijing for, for Brazil. But it appears that that while these talks are ongoing, in fact, there's a meeting next week, the group is not going to let Uruguay do this in a hurry, and Uruguay has to be careful because, you know, China aside. Brazil is still its biggest trading partner and Argentina isn't far off. So sort of don't bite the hand that feeds you. So, yeah, so that's the latest from Uruguay. Exactly. And and you mentioned Brazil over there. Now a new left-leaning government in that country may make it more difficult for countries like Uruguay to align themselves with China. Why is that? Yeah, so unlike Bolsonaro, uh, Lula, Lula da Silva, who assumes office in January, in his two previous terms as president, he was all about regional integration, uh, protectionism, or in some cases, like the construction firm Odebrecht, rife corruption across Latin America. And as the Mercosur's biggest member, and with Argentina also having a left-wing government at the moment, these two can really make life difficult for smaller nations uh, such as Uruguay and also Paraguay, who's a member. And most analysts point to the fact that the government in Montevideo is going to have to face a, a very different reality with Lula in power um, and in its bid to, to get this deal signed with Beijing by the end of the year. I mean, really could be could be seriously at threat. Um, 
There is a handover on Monday next week. Uh, Argentina takes charge of the presidency of the bloc, which again doesn't bode well. We expect that there's going to be tensions that are going to really build during that exchange and under this new leadership because Uruguay isn't going to back down. The government already this morning has made it, you know, made it clear that its mission and primary policy is to trade outside medical sword. Now, there's one more story from Uruguay we should cover. Um, Lucinda, tell us about a video of the country's traditional tea that's gone viral during the World Cup. Yeah, so this is a lovely story. Many of England's players are hooked on mate tea um, that's traditional to Uruguay, but also Argentina and parts of southern Brazil. It's sipped from a, from a gourd and um, defender Eric Dyer, who plays for Tottenham and in the national team alongside Harry Kane, put together this video of what they packed with them to the World Cup. And Dyer said that it was kilos of mate tea leaves known as yerba, yerba mate, and it, he explains to Kane how to drink it. Kane isn't so keen. But but it was a really lovely snippet. It sort of showed England off at, at its best, really, you know, open, culturally rich, wanting to get to, to other traditions, you know, up for trying new things. So so sort of stole my Latam heart. And, and many Uruguayans absolutely loved it. So, yeah, if you haven't tried mate, something to something to test. I don't do you, know if you, do you recommend? I, I personally am not a fan. It's highly caffeinated. <laughs> Um, I prefer a coffee, but you know, worth testing it out. I'm not, I'm not a fan, but I am a fan of the, you know, showing off what a country has to, uh, you know, has to has to share with the world. In fact, I think their mascot, the Urugu- Uruguay's mascot for the World Cup, is a giant thermos, which is used to top up the tea. Um, I, we'd have to check that. Okay, so a, rec- a recommendation of sorts, anyway. That was Monocle's Latin America first correspondent Lucinda Elias. Thank you very much. You are listening to Monocle Twenty Four. Art Basel, Miami Beach, the Florida outpost of the world's biggest art fair, opens to the public today. Our US editor Chris Lord has been for a sneak peek and has been speaking to the curator Magali Ariola, who puts together the Meridian section of the fair. So this is the third edition of Meridians uh, so far. The idea is to create a platform, you know, like for works that cannot be shown in the context of um, art fair, you know, like in the like normal booth, because they're either too large or either there are performances, as you mentioned before, or installations. So the idea behind the sector is to rethink, you know, like the, the, the concept of scale, not only in terms of size, but like also, you know, like in terms of expansion. So An ambition with the pieces, if, if you like. Exactly. That's exactly. really interesting. Now, I should say, just to our right, is a, is a really interesting piece, which is essentially a bunch of disembodied torsos with speedos on them. Just talk me through what's happening in this piece here. So that's a piece by Jonathan Andrade, a Brazilian artist who represented Brazil at the Venice Biennale this year. And so that's a collection of uh, bathing suits that he has been putting together in the last 10 years. And those are bathing suits that he found, the piece is called Lost and Found. And so he found them in different like swimming clubs in Recife, which is his natal uh, city. And then he commissioned different artisans to, you know, like conceive like these uh, body fragments, which are mainly hips. And that was a way for him to kind of establish like a quite, like a rather improbable conversation between, you know, like all these artisans that normally do like either religious icons or everyday objects you know like with clay 
And this time they're just like, you know, being confronted to like this representation of masculinity. So it's also like a way of, you know, like trying again to establish a dialogue between uh, these artisans and whatever, you know, like masculinity means for them, how it's represented and how it is perceived. It's really interesting because he found them over a course of 10 years, right? I mean, they're essentially just discarded speedos that he found on the beach in Recife. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, it's great. And so then he works with people who would normally make Christ sculptures, crucifixes and so on, to do this sort of, as you say, tribute to masculinity. Really interesting. What strikes you, you, you've got a very good bird's eye view here of what's being brought to this fair because, you know, so many of these pieces here, as I say, the, the galleries are right through there. So you've got a good sense of what's driving some of the conversation here. What strikes me when I look around is there's a lot of handmade things here. There's a lot of paint, sculpture, clay, uh, really materials that are, you know, analogue, not digital, back to a certain, certain sense of tangibility. Do you feel that as well? I definitely think so. So there are, you know, like we just uh, spoke about these pieces which are made out of clay, but there is also like a kind of comeback, you know, like to, tra to tradition and traditional, like, mediums. There's a piece by uh, Sara Flores, who is a Peruvian artist, who works with, uh, like, like cotton, handmade cotton, you know, like, from her regional uh, Peru and the way like this fabric is made is also a way of you know like creating some sort of sustainability within her you know like uh, within her like native uh, town so she is an artist that com comes from the Shinibo Conibo um, community in Peru and that could be put in relationship also with Jose Bedia's work who is from Cuba and he's probably one of the main uh, representatives of you know like late 20th century um, Latin American art and definitely one of the main representatives of uh, Cuban art and in his case the, the work is called uh, Manun Finda and it's uh, he, Jose Bedia is uh, a priest of Palomonte which is um, like an African religion that is practiced in, in Cuba and all of that he does is very much related to you know like this kind of spirituality which is achieved through you know like uh, yeah like a relationship with nature so we're going back to to this like very you know like gestural painting that also embraces uh, like natural elements animals animal skins so yeah, there's a crocodile animals. skin in there i think isn't there exactly yeah i'm curious do you think that there is a sort of re reaction here to if you like in recent years especially here in miami that prevalence of NFTs, digital art, screens became so much a big part of art dealing here in Miami. Do you think there's a bit of a reaction to that going on here? I'm not sure it's a reaction to that. It's probably a reaction to the pandemic, you know, like just going back to the roots and going back to the local somehow. We have another piece in the sector by Simon Denny, who is from New Zealand, and he's one of those artists that is actually, you know, like uh, he's working with NFTs, but it's, um, it's not like uh, uh, this is a piece that embraces the NFT, but it's rather a piece that is quite critical of that whole economy, and specifically, you know, like the economy of mining and extraction, which is, again, you know, like a kind of, a, you know, like it's, it's like a very aggressive kind of economy for the planet, for planet Earth. Miami Beach and Art Basel Miami Beach for so long was regarded as a gateway, if you like, to Latin America and to, to, to the scene that's happening down there across the continent. I wonder, just looking back to where you are in uh, Museo Tomeo in, in Mexico City. So much interest around Mexico at the moment. Just talk us through what's happening there, art-wise, market-wise as well, and whether we might see a fair of similar ambitions heading down south of the border. Well, 
It's seemed like a very, you know, like I would say, hype destination at this point, uh, and and we definitely have a very buoyant scene. You know, we have like many institutions, as you said, Musetama uh, is one of them, but we have, I think, it's probably one of the cities with most in the, with more institutions in the world, like different sizes, of course, and we have like a very, you know, like active gallery scene too with many many like younger galleries that are just like exploding right now and many young artists also coming up so i think it's it's really like a very good moment for the scene we do have an art fair uh, sonamaco during february which has been there i would say almost for like 20 years now and it's been like a really you know like a very big magnet for like international galleries too so it's not only like Mexican galleries but international galleries that meet during February. Curator Magali Ariora there in discussion with Monaco's USA Chris Lord. That was a recording from the Art Basel Miami Beach and you are with The Briefing. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. And finally on today's programme, Fernando Augusto Pacheco is back with his World Cup countdown. And once again, Fernando, we have... Quite a lot to do today, but shall we first again quickly recap what we're doing today and which groups you are looking at today? A quick recap of the Global Countdown World Cup. I'm looking basically at the group uh, groups of the World Cup. I'm mimicking uh, the groups, but of course we're not talking about football here, Marcus, but about music. So I'm selecting one song from each group to go through the next uh, round, which is the semi-finals next week. Uh, and it's all about music. And let's see who is going to win. Today we look at groups G and H. Exactly. And from group G, we start with Switzerland. What do we have over here? Well, it's a country that Monaco covers very well. But I wonder if we did uh, many reports on the Zurich rap underground scene. Probably not, but maybe maybe we should. Uh, so the top uh, song here in Switzerland is by their two rappers from the city, El Loco and Edrini. The song's called Will No Me. Let's have a listen and then I'll tell you about the lyrics. I would imagine this song works for you considering a Brazilian jeans. The song is about heaps going to the left and then heaps going to the right. Exactly. And 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 the German bit is uh, Zurich is the town. Bounce. Move from the lounge. So I think they're having quite some fun uh, in the Zurich nightlife, Marcus, like we, like we did as well when we go to Zurich sometimes. Mm, from Switzerland to Cameroon next, by the way. Cameroon. Cameroon is very joyful. I love this track. And in fact, it is a World Cup track because the, the Camer- Cameroonian uh, football team is even mentioned uh, in this track. Uh, I think it's a very positive track. I like it. It's by Chris M with Chacun Sans Chance. <laughs> Very 
very nice. I liked it. I like it as well. Everyone has their chance. That's the song translated. And I think it's a, song, it's a positive song to release your uh, inner groove, if mm. I may say, as well. Fernando, I'm wondering, what kind of a journalistic approach are you taking to the World Cup countdown, considering that the next act is going to be from somewhere where you are from, from Brazil. Are we going to be unbiased? I'm I'm looking at you in your eyes, Marcus. I'm telling for this, I'm completely unbiased. Honestly, it's it's not even my music taste. I just I just count a lot of factors: the mm-hmm. importance, the relevance of the music, the originality, the fun as well, perhaps the emotional, perhaps the politics of it. There's so many different aspects. Uh, but anyway, it's it is my country indeed that we're looking now, Brazil. And I have to say, I was a bit surprised with this track. It's a it's a little bit naughty. Uh, it's by the singer Gustavo Mioto and Mari Fernandes. The song is called Eu Gosto Assim, which means. I like it like this. Uh-huh. And I'll translate to you after. Let's have a listen. A gente se pega sem se apega. A gente usa cama só pra se usar. Sem amar. Mas eu gosto assim. Ele não me ama, mas eu gosto assim. A gente se pega sem se apega. A gente usa cama só pra se usar. So, Fernando, why is this song naughty? It's naughty, but quite progressive in many ways. It's a song about lust, not love. They say some people don't want love. They just want to enjoy the heat under the duvet. I mean, we but, we're not reinforcing the, the Brazilian stereotypes no, 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 here, but, are we? But it's good that, you know, they're both a man and a woman singing there about the song and it's becoming such a massive hit. I mean, I, I know Brazil are not very big into Christmas tracks or bigger into carnival tracks. Mm-hmm. That felt to me, that feels to me more of a kind of a carnival country track. Uh, in a way. Okay, that was Brazil. And then we have one more uh, a country left from Krub G. And this one is from Serbia, this song. Yeah, I did mention on the menu clip that there will be a lot of heartbreaking songs. This is one of them. They say, I couldn't admit you are the one. Uh, I would let every wound uh, open like the sky. It's very dramatic. Uh, let's have a listen from Serbia. Hany and Breskvika with uh, Sava i Tunav. I like this song, but Fernando, can you remind me, what was its name? How dare you make fun of my Serbian, Marcus? It's Sava It. Enough, you know. I'm really sorry for all, the, all, all our Serbian listeners. It's a rem- it was a good track actually. I liked it. It's a good track, strong group, I have to say. But I'll tell you the winner at the end. I think we have Group H before Marcus, and I think we have to go quick because this global countdown is a big bonanza. That's all I can say. Portugal is the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, very nice track. It's by Bárbara Bandeira. She's very famous in Portugal with Ivandro. They're both one of the top Portuguese artists of the year, I have to say. It's another heartbreaking track. It's, it's, let's have a listen. It's Como Tu, Like You. Já não faz sentido Não vejo o futuro contigo O meu coração tá partido Vai encontrar alguém como I'm sorry, after hearing a few songs like this, I have to say, it's a bit mah. 
it's a bit well you know but they, they are very professional artists but yeah I kind of agree with you as well Marcus but you know I can't review too much who knows if Portugal will go through or not something a bit more exciting perhaps from Ghana and this artist he is actually one of the most successful Afri African musicians of all time he's only 37 years old but he's already a veteran uh, in the Ghanaian music scene his name is Sakodi and he plays which it's quite interesting so it's a meeting of different generations. Uh, this song is featuring Black Sheriff, another Ghanaian musician who's only 20. Uh, so it's kind of old and new. I love that. The song's called Countryside. Let's have a listen. No more. go see for countryside. go see They go follow go for countryside. go see They go follow go for countryside. Nice. It's fun. Very uh, melodic and another great track uh, by Sarkozy, a veteran of the Ghanaian music scene. I say veteran, he's only 37. He's not that old. <laughs> I have to be very careful here. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we spoke to uh, Lucy Daly at a moment ago. She was joining us from Uruguay and I'm wondering how she feels about the track we're hearing next. I wonder as well. I know, I know Lucinda will be proud that Uruguay is here, but I wonder, let's see if they will be able to go to the next round. It, it's a very gentle ballad. There's some touches of country, some regional rhythms from Latin America. It's by a balladier. His name is Matias Valdes with Catherine Evenes. The song is called Quiero un Si. I want a yes. All I can say, Marcus, it's not happy, actually. They talk about how love doesn't always have a happy ending. So it is a bit of a sad countdown. Mm. There's a lot of heartbreaking uh, tracks here. Well, let's hope the South Koreans are a bit more update because that's the last remaining track we have for this countdown. Well... It's South Korea. It's always a special one. It's such an interesting music market and very relevant. Uh, you know, uh, this is uh, this is a track that was uh, released in March. It took some time actually to top the charts, and the only reason it did that because the singer uh, was performing college campuses across the country, and so it's kind of a slow burner, uh, a very emotional uh, ballad uh, by the young singer-songwriter Yunha. The song's called Event. Horizon. Let's have a listen. South Korea, always interesting. Always interesting. It's time for the winners. I know, this is the most exciting bit of this segment. So who are going to go to the semifinals? It's not always easy, Marcus. From Group G, I chose, and I think you'll be happy with my choice, Cameroon, for all the joy uh, they gave us. It's a great track by Chris M. Chacun, Sechance. Well done. That's good news. Cameroon. And then from Group H. Group H difficult but again I think they deserve because of the relevance of their music to the world it is going to be South Korea with Yungha Event Horizon excellent and I think we both are quite pleased by 
Glad these to countries. Hear. Sorry about Brazil, by the way. Didn't Sorry about it. Brazil. It's a it's a fun track. It's a fun track, but he didn't make it this time. Exactly. Fernando, thank you very much for joining us here on The Briefing. And that's all for this edition of the programme. It was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Kelly McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday here in London, 7am in Washington, D.C. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening.